Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The more than 20,000 crows that inhabit the largest city in the world have come to be an imposing and sometimes harassing influence on the daily lives of the people with whom these clever birds share the city of Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo Waka, a city poem, is a film poem about these crows and their people. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with filmmaker Christine Samuelson, a professor of humanistic studies in the Department of Art and Art History at Stanford University. She's the co-creator, along with her husband, John Haptis, of the film Tokyo Waka. Our visit with Christine Samuelson from her home in Berkeley, California, on May 3rd, 2013, began when I asked her to describe the nature of their film poem. We set out to make this film in um, a way that would allow us a rather discursive look at a fascinating city and several issues that arise um, living in the city. And in thinking about the way to put it together, we sort of conceived of it as stanzas of a poem, so that as the film moves through uh, its stories, and there's multiple stories with different people, um, the film is not character-based. It is not organized in a standard narrative form with a three-act structure or rising action and a crisis to be solved. It's more of a reflection upon the city um, using this stanza structure to give it a somewhat poetic form, which we really had to labor <laughs> quite arduously to get to because it's a, it's a very atypical way of making a, a film. And our film is a documentary essay, really. It's not just a nonfiction film. It has essay qualities as well. When you say you had to labor arduously, what were some of the difficulties? You know, I think one of the real problems was what comes after what. Um, in other words, we had many, many, many interesting things that we had captured about the city, and we knew that we wanted to use one key story as the, uh, the glue, so to speak. And that story, which is very important to the film, is this invasion of crows that has appeared in the city. Actually, it appeared in the city 25 years ago. Um, but remains constant today despite everyone's best efforts to control these birds. Um, and this uneasy kind of coexistence between the humans of Tokyo, which is the largest megalopolis on Earth, and all these big black birds that get in their garbage and hover in the city and have their own parallel lives that exist. You know, they, they move around the city on their own parallel tracks just as the humans do underneath them. So um, I would say that trying to take this the sort of the scaffolding of the crow story and then work and weave within it all of the other elements that we wanted to talk about, that was what made it hard. When you talk about the different elements, what are some of them? Well, I would say one of the elements that was important to us was the idea of Tokyo as this city that is constantly reinventing itself, constantly refreshing itself and recycling itself either from enormous destruction, either from earthquakes or war or fire, or simply the fact that in Tokyo there's this constant rebuilding, this constant reinfusing into every neighborhood, um, new buildings, new homes. I mean, the homes aren't built to last a long time. And so 
the pulse of the city is of this rapid recycling and reinvention, which allows a lot of change to occur, um, even at the same time that there are many things that are, of course, extraordinarily old in Tokyo. There is this also this amazing sense of, of kind of revisiting itself and remaking itself all the time. That, I think, is probably one of the more important themes that comes out in addition to the story of the crows. And then the, I think the other important, you know, probably one of the most other important themes is this, the great diversity of the population that, that we as Westerners are really not very often given access to. And we really worked hard to find characters who could help give insights into Japanese culture uh, and present to audiences people that they might not have otherwise come across, while at the same time we as outsiders and very much aware of being outsiders um, did not want to make any declarative statements about Japanese culture. But that's not really our place to do, but we wanted to give other people the opportunity to say things that they felt were important. So how did you go about locating the people who were able to give these insights? Well, you know, one of the things that you do as a documentary maker is when you start out on a project, you do tell anyone you know, um, however slightly, that might possibly know someone related to your topic, that you are making this topic and tell them, you know, what you're doing, sort of a little bit of your time framework. And we did that. We, you know, in talking to people, we would get referrals to all kinds of other people um, in Japan or expats who had just moved there or had lived there their whole lives. And through that, we started tapping into a couple of leads for interesting characters. In addition, we also started noticing things in the city that often people visiting as tourists might not get a clear picture of. And one of those, for example, would be um, the large number of homeless people living in the large Tokyo parks. They live in other parts of Tokyo, too, but in the parks, they almost live in villages with their blue plastic tarps. <clears throat> and they are quite present, quite present. And I think that's something that surprises people. So we knew we wanted to find, for example, someone who was homeless who would be willing to speak about their experience and hopefully speak about the crows. And we worked very hard to find a good character for that. And um, it took a long time, but we were able to do it through, um, again, asking a lot of people and then meeting, meeting then the possible characters and having, I mean, this is part of, you know, this is a cultural norm anyways, that you would have a, a formal meeting in Uchiawase before you ever would, you know, move to the next level with a person. And so we did a lot of those meetings. And then some of those did not result in characters that we put in the film. You know, we, after we met them, we thanked them, but we realized they weren't right. Um, but each person that we put into the film was was a challenge. It was a lot of work to find all these various interesting characters. Christine, what did you find to be the relationship between some of the people who you interviewed and crows in, in their part of Tokyo? We asked a great many people in Tokyo about their relationships with crows because if you live there, you have a relationship with crows. Some people slight, some people large. One of the people uh, who was most thoughtful in her response was a homeless woman that we interviewed in a park in Tokyo. And she's been living there for seven years, and she has a daily encounter with crows. She likes to draw and paint and has done a lot of drawings of the, of the birds. But as, as well, she just, you know, they, they will come up to her for food. I mean, there's a, a real ecosystem that's developed between people who live in the park and the crows, who also, in fact, live in the park. That's where they go at the end of the day. And that's where they spend a lot of their time even during the day. They like to be in the, in the park areas 
when they've after they've gotten their food. So she was someone who had quite a lot to say, and it was interesting because, of course, the crows being these kind of outsiders and kind of unwanted inhabitants, and in fact the homeless also being outsiders and unwanted inhabitants of Tokyo, created an in- interesting tension. We didn't explicitly state that, but that was something that she's certainly aware of, and certainly I think watching the film you become aware of that. What was your relationship with crows? Well, our relationship with crows was watchful, I'll tell you that. Um, Because crows recognize faces, if you go back for several days into an area where there are a lot of crows, which we did do, um, they will harass you. They will go over, you know, fly over you and squawk and they're not going to dive bomb you really unless it's nesting season, but they're going to, they're going to let you know that you may not be very welcome, largely because we had the cameras. The camera seemed to put them off. If we were just had been in the park as observers, I don't think it would have bothered them. And we talked to some photographers from NHK Japan about this, and they concurred that it seemed to be that the cameras, which is something they don't see all the time, the cameras were something that really put them off and annoyed them. During nesting season, when they do attack people, um, usually a glancing beak into a, the scalp, which creates a lot of blood but doesn't really hurt you. Um, they're trying to keep you away from the nest. They're not trying to attack you. They're trying to ward you off, as one of our characters says. And in the process of trying to film crows during nesting season, we certainly had some close encounters um, with them as we were trying to do our work. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with... Christine Samuelson, one of the two filmmakers, along with her husband, of a film called Tokyo Waka that reveals the effect of the 20,000 crows in the city of Tokyo, Japan, on the people who live there. Tokyo Waka is a poem about a city. This is Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Christine, why crows? Why crows? You know, John and I had um, an experience several years back where we were traveling in Asia and doing some guest teaching at various universities in countries in Asia and uh, East Asia and South Asia. And we had one of these airplane tickets that's almost like a Eurail pass. You can go, you pay one flat fee and you can go to as many places that, is on, that are on their list as, as you wish. So what we did is in addition to the places where we were going to be teaching, we added a few other places that we had never been to. And we had a discussion about whether we should add Japan. Um, given that it's a first-world country, it felt like maybe that wasn't a priority for us. And yet we went. We added it to our list. We went there and ended up being incredibly – we ended up being fascinated by how different Japan was and felt it was actually probably the most interesting place we'd gone to on that, on that journey. And – wanted to know more about Japan, wanted to understand Japan better, wanted to be in Japan more, and we became interested in this idea of possibly doing a project there at some point. At the same time, while we were in Japan, we were staying in a guest house, um, and every morning at 4.30 in the morning, we would awaken to the incessant cause of these crows, and we go, why are we hearing this? Why are there so many crows here? And we started noticing them everywhere. And a quick Internet search revealed that, in fact, this has been an issue in the city for a long time, and there were many, many more crows 
say, 10, 15 years ago, but they have done a lot of crow eradication, which we cover in the film. We show the trapping. Um, which, but it, they cannot get the number below what they've got now, which is 20, maybe 25,000 crows. Um, they keep reproducing. Uh, they are very clever. You know, crows are incredibly smart. So they, there's, a, there's a set number of them that are just not going to get caught. And the city has had to react to that reality, and that really intrigued us and seemed like a, an interesting way that we might take on the story about a Japanese place. And so we applied for a fellowship to go back um, as visiting artists at the U.S.-Japan Friendship Commission Fellowship, and we were thrilled when we received it. And we went there, and we pretty much spent every day out in the city filming, meeting people, making arrangements. Uh, We found an apartment on Craigslist that we rented, and we lived there for almost half a year. So dealing with the crows, does the Japanese government do anything to try and limit their numbers? Definitely they do. The Japanese government would like to see less crows. They're a nuisance. And among the things that they've tried to do is to do, get, a, get a better control of the garbage that's put out. And in Japan, in Tokyo anyway, um, everything is extremely precisely sorted. So it's, you know, here we sort in maybe three or four categories. There they sort in maybe nine or ten categories. And on different days, different types of garbage will be picked up. And they're all picked up in plastic bags. And the plastic bags are often the ones you get at the supermarket, or you know they're not very they're not very thick, and they're tied up and put outside. And this made it you know the crows are very smart; they know what days the garbage is being picked up in terms of real food, food food scraps, and they're there ripping into these bags before the garbage trucks come. So the federal government, and I think it's probably handled differently, actually, you know precinct by area by area, but they have created methods to challenge this for the animals, and what they do is they've handed out these nets, these blue plastic webbed webbed nets that are then placed on top of the mound of garbage in front of, say, an apartment building to deter the crows, and it works somewhat, but the crows are very clever at reaching underneath and dragging a bag out, and then a lot of the restaurants don't even use them, so wherever there's a lot of restaurants, such as in the Ginza, there's piles of garbage out there with no nets on them. But the intention is to make the garbage less accessible to them. Um, and the reason that they have, you know, that you, you would think wouldn't they want to start using garbage cans and such, but it just doesn't really work over there because they're picking up these highly sorted small numbers of bags every day all across the city and then taking them to incinerators. All the garbage is incinerated there, so the, the plastic bags are, gonna, are, are there to stay, I have to, have to admit. The other thing the federal government is doing is trapping the crows, they put traps in the city parks. They're pretty large traps, and then they uh, gas the birds with CO2 gas um, later after they've been captured. Uh, and in other cities, they have crow patrols where they, and they, you know, they're, different places will handle it a little bit differently. Another thing they'll do is take down the nests. Early on, the crows are building the nests. That, that's when they want to get them down because they often build them on transformers, and that will cause short circuits for the Internet and for electricity, for transportation, and it's a, quite a big nuisance. And so they, they go around looking for new nests and pull them down. There's a point in the film where people outsource their domestic habits or needs, mm-hmm. like cooking mm-hmm. and eating, mm-hmm. greatly done outside of the home, somewhat different than uh, in other countries. Does that have an effect on the crows? 
Well, there's a lot of restaurants in Tokyo as a consequence of the fact that there is an awful lot of eating out there. Um, the apartments are small, and you know, elaborate cooking is difficult. So, you know, food is relatively cheap, and you know, you'll find four or five restaurants on practically every, you know, semi-commercial street. And yes, I think it does have an effect on the crows because that generates quite a lot of garbage, and the restaurants are putting out so much more than the residences that they are not as careful about the netting. Um, that I will have, however, say that you know I remember that you know part of the film very well, and I think it is very true that in a huge city with a lot of commuting, you know, it's just inevitable there's going to be an awful lot of outsourced activities that normally in years past might have taken place in the home. I think that's true actually in any big city in America just about as well. Um, but at the same time, of course, there are going to be um, people who prize their Japanese cooking and love to cook at home. I mean, there's, there's, it's both, both exist, but in that, that highly structured world of long commutes, surely, yes, there is a great amount of, great number of restaurants and a large amount of garbage. Chris Samuelson, adapting to the conflict between the human activity in Tokyo and the nature of Tokyo, can you tell us about that? It, well, you know, I think that in particularly in large cities where you don't have a lot of gardens and you don't have, you know, everybody's pretty much organizing their outside activities in the parks, which are beautiful in Tokyo and, and numerous, I feel that as city dwellers, it's just very hard to connect with nature in its raw form. I mean, the parks are very groomed. They have perfectly manicured bushes, and it's, it's all very sculpted in a sense. And I think that to connect with nature just becomes a bigger challenge. And interestingly, nature is very important to Japanese people, and they have, in fact, these amazing festivals at temples where they celebrate the, the particular seasonal plant that is chosen to stand for a particular moment at a particular time of the year, for example, the morning glory or the chrysanthemum. And so there's an effort to connect with nature, but it isn't that raw nature. It's not like a national park. It's, it's always sort of controlled. It's in a pot. It's manicured. It's a bonsai. Um, it's still a very huge, a large appreciation of nature. It's just looked at in a different way. And I think that there is sort of this sense of manufactured nature in a city like Tokyo. Chris, you were saying that nature is looked at in a different way. Different from what? Well, I would say, for example, in Japan, because of the many festivals that, that acknowledge the passing of the seasons and the ways in which um, people appreciate their nature, even if it's very um, manicured in a sense, is somewhat different than what I have experienced in my lifetime, which is that, you know, you, you maybe have some plants in your backyard, but, you know, the seasons come and go. You're not marking them with the solemnity and the grandeur that I think is, is afforded them, accorded them in Japan. I think they really, they revere nature. I, I, I feel, I feel like from my Japanese friends that, that nature is revered there, but it is a kind of nature that exists in the city that is, is this more sculpted, nature that is this more controlled nature that people can easily access and it's not messy you know what i'm saying and so it's quite different i think than what we have here and i think it's it's certainly different from what i've ever experienced growing up in the pacific northwest where there's lots of 
you know, nature in situ that you can, you know, get outside the city and you can be hiking in a forest quickly. One of the things that I did notice in the film is that Tokyo is not messy. The focus of the film on the crows, you would expect to see crow droppings, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Did you? No, not not much. The city the city keeps itself very clean. And so in terms of the, yes, there's droppings in the park, but there's so many leaves and other things in the park you don't really notice them. And when the crows are out in the city, certainly there there are droppings, but the city is very clean. Uh, it's both kept clean by the, you know, Tokyo Metropolitan Government, but also by the shopkeepers and the homeowners. There's a great, a great concern with kind of that sensibility about having a clean city. And the other thing I've noticed, well, John and I both noticed when we were in Tokyo, is that there's just not trash on the streets like we're used to seeing in large American cities, for example. And I think part of this is due to the fact that people don't walk around eating food with wrappers. I mean, they go into a place, they sit down, they eat it. There's not a lot of takeout in the same way that we're used to it here. And so that, I think, really reduces some of the mess on the streets. Earlier you were talking about insights into the Japanese culture. Some are revealed in your film Tokyo Waka. Are there others? Yes, I would say that in living in Japan, the kind of insights you get that just seep into your skin because you're living there, because you're going to the same shops with your your you know fellow residents, because you're doing activities that other people are doing. You're riding the subways. You're doing. You're in constant contact. We also took Japanese classes. They they were free at our local community center, um, where we be each of us was assigned to an individual Japanese person kind of a salon situation where and we became friends with a lot of these people and we would go out to eat with these people and kind of we went to a couple people's homes and I feel that the you know, those were insights that kind of trickled into us um, just from the experience of living there and uh, you know this tremendous uh, hospitality uh, of the Japanese people even though often you don't go into their homes often you meet in a restaurant just because frequently the homes are quite small we really sensed a, a gentleness there that, that, yes, it's in striking contrast to some of the, the bustling electronic centers, but overall it just seemed a real central attribute of a lot of the people that we met. Um, this interest in traditions that have been part of Tokyo in Japan for centuries, very, very evident in the culture. And that, that was an insight that was reinforced again and again, just this idea that not only are there are particular festivals and events and um, seasons that are really honored there and appreciated there, but also that uh, there are activities there that have been going on for so long. For example, people, street vendors, r- routinely walking through the residential streets with their horns selling tofu or selling roasted sweet potatoes, and these are very seasonally linked. And there's all manner of things that are sold in that way. There are, you know, which you wouldn't really see in a lot of other large first world cities. Well, Christine Samuelson, maker of the movie Tokyo Waka, I want to thank you uh, for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we get to the last three closing questions, can you tell us what Waka means? Sure. Um, Waka is is a form of Japanese poem. Uh, a rather ancient form, and it usually applies to what's considered a tanka, which is a rather short poem. 
and we just felt that it was a a good word for us to describe our film. It was alliterative with Tokyo. Waka is a little bit like the cause of the crows, and it it spoke to the poetic structure we were striving for. So tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life that changed your view of the world or gave you a new path to follow. You know, I feel like life is composed of a series of, of moments. Some of them are a little bit more aha than others. But you know how you your path gets turned slightly um, just in the course of as you get older, you start to become exposed to so many more things. But I would say that a recent um, moment that caused me to reflect on my life was, was, in fact, the being in Japan, because I have a very busy teaching life. I teach a, I'm a university professor, and I teach full-time, and was very caught up in that and trying to balance that with filmmaking, and it involved juggling a lot of plates. But when we were in Japan... Uh, because we were there as artists as on a fellowship, we weren't working, we were just working on our film, there was much more white space to sort of think about so many different topics and things that just otherwise get pushed away that I felt like I had just a lot more time to reflect and my life felt much more balanced. And as a consequence, I am actually cutting back on my teaching and creating a much better balance in my life between my film work, my family, and the actual work I do as a teacher. So that's that was, a, I think, a, a real revelation to me. So that clearly is the step to our next question. What would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? Well, I, I guess you're right. It does lead directly from the last question we discussed, because I, I think that, for me, balance is very important. And, you know, obviously my family is very important to me. The fact that I have more time now to work on creative projects, not just films, but other things too, uh, mean something to me. I've planted a garden, which I haven't done for many years, and that's powerful. Um, I, I think probably a little bit of that sense of appreciation of nature definitely trickled into me as well as other things while I was in Japan. So I think this idea of trying to have a well-spent life that, that has a good center to it, but also a lot of balance is, is how I want to continue. And finally, Chris Samuelson, is there a book or a film that you could recommend to our listeners? One of my favorite filmmakers, and I know this is true for John also, we're very inspired by her, is a Dutch filmmaker, and her name is Hedy Honigman. It's spelled H-O-N-I-G-M-A-N-N. She's made a number of wonderful, lyrically beautiful films about such a wide range of topics, and uh, we consider her a huge inspiration for our work. So I would encourage viewers to seek out her documentary films, which are really, I would say, documentary essay poems. They're just magnificent. Um, Her most recent one is called Oblivion, and it's about Peru, where she spent a lot of her childhood. Um, But another favorite of ours is one about the buskers in the uh, Paris metro, and it's called The Underground Orchestra, and that's a film rich with insights. So I would really encourage people to look for that. Well, Chris Samuelson, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Christine Samuelson, a professor of humanistic studies at Stanford University, is the co-creator, along with her husband, John Haptis, of the film Tokyo Waka. Stylofilms.com 
That's S-T-Y-L-O-Films.com is their website. Christine Samuelson recommends two films, Oblivion and Underground Orchestra by Hedy Honigman. That's H-E-D-D-Y-H-O-N-I-G-M-A-N-N, a Peruvian-born Dutch filmmaker. This interview was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on May 3rd, 2013. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.